Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy? Uh, a really rad conversation with Adam Egypt Mortimer. Yep, 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 yep. You got to stop using the word rad. I got to stop using the word rad because we've been saying that for every episode in in this uh, Overlook series that we've been doing. Uh, look, I've, A, been trying to bring rad back since like 2001, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's a great word. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent descriptor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a really and, good BMX movie. Yeah. And I'm never going to stop saying rad. So you stop saying rad, and it could just be my thing. Uh, no, no, no. Rad's my thing. <laughs> no, I think I said rad before you said rad. <laughs> I am older than you. Uh, so, yeah, we have a really rad conversation. We're talking to Adam Egypt Mortimer today about his film, Daniel Isn't Real, which uh, premiered, I believe, at the South by Southwest Film Festival and then is making the rounds right now in the circuit. We saw it at the Overlook. Uh, this film floored me. Yeah. I, I, I think it's one of the most powerful movies that I've seen this year. It's, it's it, boy. And I think we can do a general synopsis without spoiling too much. I, what I'm about to say does not happen beyond the first 10 minutes of the movie. Right. Uh, a young boy named Luke, he is experiencing the deterioration of his family. His mom and dad are in the middle of a brutal fight. The divorce is going to happen. He leaves that argument. He stumbles out the door, walks down a street in New York City, and he stumbles upon a crime scene that has occurred at a local diner. Mm-hmm. And when he witnesses the, the horror of that scene, there is an appearance of another character mm-hmm. named Daniel, his new imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, it's not Drop Dead Fred. No, and I, I'm not sure Adam was super thrilled when you made that comparison. Uh, I did not. He, Adam brought up Drop Dead Fred first. I just started talking about imaginary friend movies. He's the one who pulled the trigger on that comparison, not me. And our listeners are going to hear that in the conversation in a few minutes. We're we're conducting this interview at the Hotel Peter and Paul. Uh, we have a nice little suite that the Overlook set aside for us, our thanks to them. And... We open the door, Adam walks in, I hit record, I think you hit record the moment he walked in, and we just go right into this chat. There's no like, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. It's, what did you think of my movie? It's like, oh, well, I loved it, and now I'm going to (laughs) fawn over you. Uh, So please forgive our fawning, but it happens right out the gate. Uh, anything else we need to say before we jump into this conversation, Billy? Uh, no. No, I don't think so. I, I think um, enjoy the conversation. All right, let's get into it. And you both saw the movie. Oh, yes. yes. Cool. Yeah, cool. liked it very much. Why don't you, yeah, tell me, let's start by just, okay. I, you know, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what, what your guys' reaction was and, you know, sort of how, how you perceived the movie. I found it very upsetting, <laughs> uh-huh. but in a great way. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> 
you, you know, I, yeah. do you like that feeling of being oh, upset? Is that uh, like what? Because for me, that's what horror movies are about. Yeah, it's I like I love that feeling because it's a movie that you know it, it moves you in some way. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, this won't be part of the podcast, but like, no, this should definitely we should definitely put this into the. Conversation. Well, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody. Well, you can right? say some things, maybe okay. cut around it or whatever. Figure so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if the the movie is Danielle isn't real. Yeah, so, and it's about. Uh, Luke and he's got an imaginary friend that pops into his life after he sees uh, a, a really traumatic act of violence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and also, which is on the same day that he's going through a, f- a family trauma because his, his, his parents, parents are having this very right. intense breakup and, right. and, and the father's leaving. And that yeah. all happens within the first 30 seconds. It's, of the yes. movie. <laughs> it's a shocking first 30 seconds. <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a 30 seconds. It's like, you know, when you read a great first line of a novel or a short story, like, yeah. Yeah, you read that line, you're like, well, I need to know every line that comes after yeah, this line. Yeah, and that's yeah. what the opening of Daniel Isn't Real is. Uh, but, and with these kinds of movies, you start to go like, okay, this is a metaphor for mental illness. And, you know, the mom is suffering her own kind of mental illness. So it's a generational thing. Uh, but then at some point you start to question, is Daniel not real or is Daniel totally real? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is this an imaginary friend movie, a mental illness movie or a monster movie? Yeah. Yeah. Or as I like to talk about it a lot, it's like, it, go, it goes from being psychological to being cosmic and that, you know, it's sort of, and, and because it was, yeah, a little crafting even. And, and I, I was influenced a lot by like Buddhism and Buddhist hmm. sort of theology and, and, and worldview. And, and how do you tell a story that seems so like sort of prosaic? It's this, these, you know, college students and they're just trying to learn how to have sex and take drugs, but connect that to like vast spiritual themes and like, what's our place in the multiverse and how do you do that all in one short movie you're talking my language (laughs) cosmic well you're wearing a superman shirt Um, so i'm like grant morrison is a a huge influence on me we've collaborated on stuff as well really that nothing that's come out but we've we've done things like we're working on a movie together and you know like and um so he you know but before i became his friend he was somebody you know when i read like the invisibles yeah and i was like wow he really found a way to make this you know, there's parts of that comic that's a story about, you know, so small. Like, you know, there'll be an issue that's like one agent that's part of, you know, Roswell and like what his whole life is like. And then other issues goes to like yeah. the multiverse and the connecting the past and the present and things like yeah. that. And not that Daniel is like really, you know, an homage to Grant or anything like that. But 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 I think I've always felt a connection to him because of that, you know, combination of like the really personal and the really specific and, and the vastness mm-hmm. of the universe. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Grant even. Uh, we Com- talk, great comic book writer, but now you know, doing great TV. Uh, we, we talk, also. yeah, yeah, yeah. All-Star Superman is my favorite superhero story mm-hmm. of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like Superman, obviously, in general, yeah. but yeah. that <clears> one of the great works as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Doom Patrol, The Invisibles, yeah. I love all that yeah. stuff. We for I mean, I'm a major Grant Morrison yeah, yeah. fan, so yeah. I'm super excited to talk all this, that if you have the original <laughs> so w- when we three came out it was three issues yeah. the cover of the first issue uh, of the third issue has a tiny homage to my mother who had just died when that issue came out and there's a with it's you know remember how each issue the art is the lost yeah, head yeah, yeah, yeah. so the third one which is the missing rabbit says if i think it says like if found call mrs mortimer oh, and sure. that issue had come out like right after my mom died and i was really touched oh, by man, that because his his Father died a year or two before that, and we had sort yeah. of had like a 
parallel, you know. Huh. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, so yeah, so he's always, he's been like an, a, a big influence on you know my thinking about how do you how do you do really big magical cosmic stuff, but also have it sort of grounded and connected and psychological and you know. So what's the what's the attraction to the? I'm, I'm very because you know we start the conversation with you saying, well, I, you know, were you upset by the movie? Yeah, yeah. And you know, like the psychological. Horror where uh, mental illness comes into mm-hmm. it is very upsetting. Like mm-hmm. it's it's necessarily very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, what like as a filmmaker, why do you feel like that's the the pool that you want to dive into to kind of explore and tell stories of the multiverse? Yeah. Well, are you asking? <clears throat> that was uh, okay. Um, There's a lot in that question. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm let's, still let's really yeah. Let's just get, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll pick it apart. So. Um, you know, when I first read the novel, this is based on a novel um, yeah. called In This Way I Was Saved, and the novelist and I adapted the book. Um, and the, the initial attraction to me was, well, initially it was, oh, it's cool. Like, it's just, you know, I had an imaginary friend when I was like two years old. I had, mm-hmm. had a guy named, maybe I was four. I, I vividly remember introducing my father to Mr. Nobody, it was oh, wow. this egg-shaped man that I was having lunch with at preschool. My dad came to visit, and I was like, "Dad, meet Mr. Nobody." Like that was, and it, and it was a visual like yeah. thing that existed. Um, so I was like that idea, and I always liked the opportunities to do a movie where you can see the imagination world coming to life. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the scene, like these little kids are having a sword fight with broomsticks, but then the the broomsticks become medieval swords, and then suddenly they're in the ruins of a cool medieval castle, yeah. and that's all in their imagination, but then it comes back later as part of life in a, in a, in a twist. Um, so that was what attracted to me to it originally, and then as we started writing it, I was thinking about it more and more of, like, we all have a dark side. We're all, like, want to be good people, but what if you have also negative impulses, and how do you deal mm-hmm. with that? So I thought about that a lot, which isn't mental illness. That's just the human condition. Right. Um but, like, from a plot point of view, it was like, well, the way he's behaving is like he's having a manic episode. And, mm-hmm. and so then I started to draw on, like, my experiences when I was the same age as the characters was my best friend went through a very intense experience that was like that. And we were roommates, you know, living together at college. And, and what, I re- what I noticed when I was thinking about it and thinking about how it would work in the story was that, first of all, there's something really seductive about that feeling. Like, when you have a manic episode, it's like... You're smarter, faster, need less sleep, more energetic than everybody else around you. You can do all this cool stuff. And from your point of view, when you're going through that, you don't know that you're ill. You think things are awesome for a minute. And when you're somebody, when you're that young, you don't, we don't know how to recognize that that's happening to people that you know. Right. You know, and the, the thing that I always think about is like at that age, me and everyone I knew were all just fucking assholes who wore yeah. crazy clothes sure. and painted our nails weird colors and had weird haircuts and did weird art projects. So it's really hard to tell when one of you is, is really gone, really had a break from reality because you're all sort of trying to test out what reality is. So it's really hard to help your friends and it's really hard for adults to recognize what's going on around you. So I wanted to bring all of that into it. And then finally I wanted to structure the movie so that it would have that feeling of like starting with kind of a, a feeling of quiet, isolation and then becoming really manic, really exciting, but then grinding that up so far that you realize, oh my God, I'm exhausted and miserable and I can't stop. And then it becomes something really horrible and paranoid and you break with reality. And I think that's something that's 
it's the structure of mental illness and people who've had these kind of traumatic experiences will hopefully recognize that on the screen, but it also expands into something that I think is bigger than mental illness mm-hmm. and becomes this thing about what our what our tiny human relationship is to reality yeah because that can you know if you read like Philip K. Dick you know was he mentally ill or was he seeing the world in wondrous new ways mm-hmm. or was it both or you know yeah you know as, uh, so I have um, I have issues with anxiety mm-hmm. um, and the scene there's a scene where uh, Luke is walking down the road um, after having some upsetting news and it's right before uh, she on her yeah. skateboard crashes yeah. into him yeah that sound design mm-hmm. where the traffic noise yeah. is dialed up, yeah. that's my, like when I'm walking down the road and I'm having issues with anxiety, that is what the world feels like. Yeah. But me. then she crashes into him. Then, yeah. But then she crashes into him and then that's, yeah. And it goes in a whole other direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I'm glad you're talking about the sound design. I think, because I, you know, I like to think of what I, if I was going to describe my style, it's the cinema of anxiety. Like that's really how I think about <laughs> I it. And, um, and I think that, and we can get to this in a little bit, but I think that directing is about recognizing when you're being anxious and turning sure. that into something. Um, it's a big part of, of my practice as a filmmaker, but, uh, yeah, the sound design, like I was always talking to our, our wonderful sound designer, Owen, about like, turn up the world. Like I want to hear more of the world. Like yeah. even when we're in, side of the apartments and stuff and you know since it took place in New York and we shot it in Brooklyn there was always there's no end to the noise that you can get away with putting in there and right. when we shot up the 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 scene that you're describing we got to like whatever street corner we were allowed to shoot on and there was crazy there was like so there was construction there was a guy laying down asphalt and you know with a machine and normally you'd be like fuck this and I was like this is great like (laughs) (laughs) you know I don't even think we shot as much chaos as was really happening on that street then we added more in the sound and and everything like that but but yeah and and then there's the this aspect in the sound design we we added where he's hearing this banging sound that you know you you see the origin of that when he's a kid and then 12 years later it's still there and you're like oh my god like what's it what's it like to exist for 12 years with this you know I guess we're trying to suggest something psychological, but do it really specific with sound. Because mm. it's such a fun tool in film that is sometimes overlooked, you know, except when you have the opportunity, to, if you say like, hey, let's really make a sound choice in this movie, let's really dig into it. And luckily our sound designer was like, really generous with his time and his work. Well, I'm sure that he uh, must feel like, what a, like what a treat to have mm-hmm. somebody come along and say, "Hey, I want you to do sound on my film." Yeah. But guess what? It's Candyland. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. can we do yeah. that really? We had a lot of fun. Experience. But it's interesting because I also I think sometimes frustrated the um, some of the, the the sound designers, the people creating the, the sounds, because I'm also I'm kind of a, there's a thing that happens, especially in horror movies, where there's a lot of non-diegetic sound effects, like sounds that are like. <laughs> You know, like these kind of, like every transition to like a new establishment shot goes like, and I was like, fuck that shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was really against it. I was like, it had, it, 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 that just, I don't know what those sounds are. What does that mean? Like, are you just telling the audience, get ready, you know? And it's like, that sucks. Like if we didn't achieve it, we didn't achieve it, you know? So like, let's not rely on that. I think there's probably, you know, now some, one of your listeners is going to be like, well, actually in frame, like 4,008, yes, we do have a couple wumps. I'm sorry. Like, you know, the final pass, I was like, okay, oh, and you can put it in your wumps and something here. But for the most part, it was like, how do you, you know, just do it with like a car driving by or a thing or, you know, what if there's just not a sound that makes that transition or... So Brad and I were talking about some of the sound design before he came in and he mentioned... 
um, at the very beginning of the movie uh, when he sees uh, that upsetting event. Yeah. When Luke sees that upsetting yeah. event. There is a sound that there happens is sound. that is like a tearing. Yes. Is that a diegetic sound or yeah. is that an diegetic yeah. sound? That is. That is a sound that, that Luke is hearing. Okay. And, um, and that sound occurs in, a, in other places yeah. that, that has to do with you know traveling between the, the worlds that we've established. And it's it's got a vibe of like it's sort of a electrical. It was something... Daniel Noah um, from SpectreVision, one of my producers, was very invested in trying to make that kind of a sound work. And, er, there, was, there had been a thing in the script where when Luke first meets Daniel, they touch hands and, and a blue spark shoots mm-hmm. from their touch. Um, and we shot that in that scene, but it didn't, I didn't like how it looked. I didn't like the performances, so we cut it out. But then we thought, you know, let's... It's going to be real subtle. Nobody's going to notice it, but you guys did. Well, you, and then you, you know when you when you get into the the dollhouse and there's like the crazy strobes, like that sound is kind of that you know like that is there is this sort of like electrical current energy sound that connects the, the worlds yeah. and it connects the imagination and whatever else this thing is that's you know that we see. The excitement for me watching the movie is the specificity. Like uh-huh. I come away with that and go, this is a filmmaker who knows what he wants and very specifically but it is such a hard thing to achieve and I just in talking to you right now it's obvious to me that you have done a whole lot of research of how you want to achieve the emotional effect of this movie yeah. through technology absolutely so what is your process before you even get on set into production like I know you spoke to no film school. You talked about your lookbook. Yeah, yeah, film. yeah. They they mis they mistitled that. That was not the lookbook. Okay. That was the style guide. Because uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> lookbook is a is a term that that everybody's familiar with. So I understand why you would say that. But um, the process that you're asking me about is yeah. so specific to sort of how because I've never worked with other directors in my career. Um, so I sort of had to figure it out myself and get really specific about how I was going to do it. Um, so. The, the like the big idea that I have when I think about how to approach a movie is thinking about um, that it has a couple sections of style and these are like big you know there's going to be like four or five of these in a, in a feature film and so that because you're you always want to have a movie to have like its style should have an arc just like there's an emotional arc to the you know so you the very beginning of the movie is going to look and feel one way and the very end is going to look and feel a little bit differently but how do you smoothly get there and a lot of times what you see in a movie you know sort of the simplest way to do that is at the beginning of the movie you choose uh, sort of very static shots or very controlled shots and at the end when everybody's fighting it's handheld mm-hmm. like that's you know and um because now it's crazy, so it's handheld, and like that—that's very basic. But it is better than not having an arc at, at all, right? Um, but with this movie specifically, I broke it down into five sections, style sections, and understood very, very clearly what, what each of those are. Described them in great detail in a document, and the document went to everybody before I hired anyone to the movie. This was a document that was finished. So when I I interviewed like 20 cinematographers. They all mm-hmm. read this document before we even had an interview um, so that they could understand, you know, what, what I was going for. And, um, and so that, and the, and the style is based on like an emotional idea and then how is it achieved? So the first style section in the movie is called isolationism. And it's, uh, you know, and so when you see like, when we meet Luke at college and he's sitting in his in his dorm room and he's sitting in the window and he's in a little square and all the rest of it is a brick wall. It's like these kind of 
the shots are a little bit more flat and a little bit more, um, you know, like wide and a little bit sadder. It's like a minor key. Mm -hmm. And then um, later in the movie, there's a section called Manic, and that's when Luke and Daniel are having the best time and they're running around, and that's we're moving the camera a lot more, and there's a, a and it changes the color palette of the movie. We add warm colors. We add, you know, <clears throat> there's all this pink and purple that appears because of Daniel and. Uh, there's like oranges that appeal appear because of Cassie and like the characters are responsible for bringing in the colors, but it's changing. Mm -hmm. Like when Cassie first appears at the apartment, um, you know, just after Daniel has come back into Luke's life, there's a big steady cam shot where like Luke comes walking towards camera to find the money he's going to give her and we track in with him and we track around and we're seeing the whole apartment and things are like really moving. And so that's, oh, we've just shifted into this like manic thing, but it's, motivated by what's happening with the characters and new people coming into his life and new energies. So I broke down the whole movie based on like these different kind of mm. uh, styles and then so and, and so one thing that happens is you go, oh shit, we have this scene here like on, you know, scene 67 where, uh, what do we, you know, and you go, well, at least I know it's in so-and-so section. So that means we're going to shoot it this one way, not this other way. Mm -hmm. And it was also super important to figure out how do we shoot an imaginary friend, like who can see him? Yeah. If we see him in the frame, who does that mean our point of view is from mm -hmm. and when do we not see him? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a page of like very specific rules about that that had to do with um, when is it dirty? Like, you know, like, when, like, like we, we wanna see Daniel with like a little piece of Luke in front of, you know, things like, and we broke every single rule that we established, but by establishing the rules, you, you, you understand something, you know, about what you're trying to say, so you're not just shooting people, you know, willy-nilly, and it drives you crazy, and then you'll get, on the day, you're like, oh my god, like, we have to do all of this stuff, and we've only got this much time, and like, but we, I have all these rules, and my producer's like, fuck the rules, just shoot the scene, and I'm like, oh no, no, because people will inevitably be like, nobody cares about your rules, I just want the story, and I'm like, I know, but the visual is the story, like, yeah. this is what... I'm interested in as a director, like I already wrote the story, but once we're making it a movie, the story is the visuals. And I think that's, this is a little philosophical, but I, I think you have to really fight against your urge to think that a movie is like a container for people that you're hearing a rumor about. It's a, a, a movie is like moving pictures and that's the only thing that there is well, in the world. Well, I think we get so hung up on narrative mm -hmm. in, in film mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, I like a good story but I'm yeah. here for film right? because it's a, it's a combination of things. Totally, right? totally. I think there's a, there's been a, you know, a slide in our culture where we're starting to think of we're starting to take this opposite direction where we're thinking of movies as like Expanded Wikipedia articles. Because and then that means like, well, I missed the movie or I missed season eight, but I'll just read the Wikipedia article yeah. now. I know what happened, oh, oh, and it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and I didn't mean to say season eight specifically. Yeah, I guess yeah. that was a Freudian, <laughs> Freudian slip. But um, as somebody who's written a bunch of ending explainer articles, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I understand why there's a need for it because there's so much fucking shit out there. And, yeah. and in a way, you know, I do sometimes feel like I, just to be in a conversation, like I need to you review need to what happened in some like sure. anime or something, you know, some, you know, I got to catch up on something. Like I'm never going to watch all of Walking Dead, but maybe someday I'll need to read a plot <laughs> breakdown. So thank you for writing some shit like that. But, don't think, please don't. But, uh, think, but, but it does, but because of the prevalence of that, it's, it's sort of fucked with our ability yeah. to 
understand what a movie is because a movie is not rumors about imaginary people. A movie is like the extraordinary feelings that arise from moving humans and their relationships around in a two-dimensional plane, you know, and that's like, that sounds boring, but it's fucking awesome when it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but with a, a style guide like that, with so many rules, yeah. finding collaborators yeah. must be even more challenging. No, they, everybody's so stoked. When yeah. you give somebody something like that, they're so stoked because I think that what, you know, like my, uh, my production designer, Kate McKennedy, was like so ecstatic when I gave that to her. And it, and it has color palettes, you know, the first part of the movie uses, you know, I have like, you know those things, there's, there's those like Twitter feeds that are like a frame and then the, yeah. the color palette, like yeah. I, I made those yeah. for what a our movie would look like and yeah. you know, it's like the beginning, it's these like beiges, greens, blues and then later in the movie we had pink and red and, uh, and she was ecstatic to have that much already sort of there because I think the problems that sometimes people in your crew encounter is if you're not telling them exactly what you want, then they're guessing and they might be like, okay, I was up for the past three days. Yeah. Here's my idea. And then you look at it and go, oh, I was kind of thinking it would be more blue, you know, and they're yeah. like, oh. But to be like, here's exactly what I want, like it gives them so much to design for and, and, and think about and deal with. And also like, I'm super open to their ideas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part one of the, uh, you know, there was, um, at the end, when we're in that crazy world that we go into, yeah. and it's orangey, that, that color of orange was something that my cinematographer had suggested that was based on images that he saw that were reference images and things, but I had never really nailed that color down to that world. I was thinking of it differently, and, and he sort of had really responded to this one reference image I had of a painting of a fortress in the middle of nowhere, and he said, let's make it look like that. And I said, cool, man. You know, so it, it, so having like a depth of understanding of everything you want, being able to share it coherently, allows it to change in a way that is going to work. And I think for me, that's the thing. It's like I need all the collaborators to absorb all of this stuff so they know what I'm going for, so that if they have some new idea, it's going to fit into the world. Because you're always dealing with everybody has an idea, and how do you figure? And it kind of goes back to the the anxiety question, like. Sometimes you'll be thinking of something, someone will be like, well, what if we do like the opposite? And you, you're gonna often just freak out. You're gonna yeah. be like, no, I, I told you I needed it to be a giant lizard, not a small rabbit, you know? <laughs> but if they're coming at it like, well, you know, like your whole story is about rabbits, so it's weird that there's not a tiny rabbit here. You know, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you do, you, do, you have seen the same, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. Saying? We're through creating the rules and sharing the rules. Yeah. And people, uh, responding to that, yeah. they can then fight for those rules when maybe you even lose. Yeah, totally, totally. And and also, I mean, I I, I don't like to use the word rules. I, I, I think, what, you know, there was one page about it that had to do with specifically shooting Daniel, and that was rules, wow. because that was something that me and that, that Lyle, the cinematographer, and I developed ourselves for ourselves, so that they were, it was like, these are rules for ourselves. For the most part, this is why I use the term style guide, because those two words, like guide, sounds kind of cool. It's like Virgil taking us down into the the Inferno and like, you know, style is fucking cool, you know, like, so that, so I think that style guide invites more collaboration rather than like, here's right. 30 pages of rules about how to shoot my movie. I never talk to people like that. You know, it's always like, here's, here's as incredibly detailed vision as I can give you. What do you, if you accept this mission, 
what do you guys want to do? You know, that's how I try to approach it. How, so how do you see the, the role of director in terms of setting the overall look? Of, like, are you the chief collaborator and the decider mm. at the end of the day? Mm. Or are you the architect of the grand vision? Like, Yes, I am the architect of all <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it all, it starts, you know, with me you know, sitting by myself for a long time looking at pictures and looking at movies and comparing them to the script and thinking about, like, what is this really going to be like? And then as people join the project, they become my collaborators, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like when I was writing it, Brian and I were, you know, very very deeply collaborators on writing the script. And I, I very rarely, if ever, pull, like, well, I'm the director, so we're doing it this way. Like, it, it's mm -hmm. just, it's not, it's not constructive to do that. I did that, the only time I've ever done that was very recently, we wrote a brand new script that took place in Cape Cod during the winter, and, um, and we f we'd worked on it for about three months and we finished it, and then we went into a polishing, and I said, Brian, I'm not shooting a movie in Cape Cod in the winter. <laughs> I'm just not gonna do it. It might look cool in your mind, but it will not work. Like, no one will, will come onto the project. Yeah. I don't like being cold, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, and that was from this really directorial point of view of like, we're moving from the page in our, in our imaginations to reality. Yeah. But, I do, but, but on Daniel, I, I never pulled anything like that with him. So, and then once the movie becomes made, then you find these other people that are just as close to collaborators. And, and on this one, it was like Kate, the production designer, and Lyle, the cinematographer, we were you know, all really in sync and everybody was very able to um, share brand new ideas. I mean, you know, Lyle suggested, uh, when Daniel shows up in the, in the movie as an adult, his first shot when he's in the bathtub, mm -hmm. that was yeah. Lyle's idea, that wasn't, that wasn't in the script. It was my cinematographer, because we were sitting around brainstorming like, the first shot we have of him, what's it going to be? Is he over his, with the shadows, with the light, is he stepping, what's he wearing? And I was like, what if he's in the bathtub? And I was like, that's insane. Let's definitely do that. And then that became a fight because you bring up this crazy idea and then everybody else involved with the movie is like, what are you talking about? Like, why is he in the bathtub? You know, even all the way in editorial, the producers were like, is there a way to cut around it so he's not in the bathtub? And we're like, we can try it, but I'm pretty sure he's in the bathtub. And, um, and I think it's great. I love that, you know, I love that it's the heaviest and most intense emotional moment um, possibly in the movie and then undercut by his appearance in this totally yeah. absurdist way and yeah. then right back into the heavy emotion of it. I think that's really interesting, in you know. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, so, so many questions just sprung to mind. Yeah. The idea of having to fight for that specific shot of that reappearance of Daniel in the tub. Yeah. So, you know, you, you and Lyle... Bam! This is this has got it's got to be this way. We shoot it this way, and yeah. now you have to defend it to your editors, your producers. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, well, first we shot it, so then that's in the movie. Once we shoot it, right. and, then, <laughs> and then I think when we were in post, it became you know in the the SpectreVision people are four you know brilliant minds: sure. it's Elijah Wood, of course, and 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 Daniel Noah and Josh Waller, who's the head of production, and Lisa Whalen. And so with the four of them. We, you know, we'd look at the cuts as we were doing them, and, it, you know, I think they said, can we do it without the, the bathtubs? We, I think, I think, you know, there was a concern that the bathtub was, like, fucking up the emotion, the heavy emotion, and my thing is, like, how do we push it, be like, I get, we have the emotion, it's there, but what else can we do with it? It felt, to me, like, like, that totally fit for yeah. Daniel. Like yeah, yeah. It was, it's the it movie. Was such it's a the movie. fit, yeah. yeah, like, for his character. Well, and I'll tell you, psychologically, my, my, you know, because sometimes, it's funny, sometimes you have an idea where you're like, well, I need to create this feeling, what's the image that goes along with it? Other times you'll, 
you'll come up with an image, you know, Lyle will say, what if he's in the bathtub? And then we'll think, okay, well, that's cool, but why is it? Why, was it? why does that work? Why does that fit? And you go, well, because Luke is the most stressed out he's ever been. And Daniel, at this part of the movie, being the psychological aspect of Luke that he wishes he could be, it's like when you are in such a difficult, high-anxiety situation, what you, want it, what you want your mind to be is a floating in a bathtub yeah. with Rose. You want to be as chill as possible. And, and I think that's why, to me, that scene works, because Luke is losing it, and now here's his alter ego being the most relaxed we ever see him in the whole it's film. Yeah, to what's going yeah. on. And it I think that shows you how far out he is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's you know, and it does that totally visually. It's showing you visually what Luke wishes he was right then. Yeah, and I think that's why it why it works, and it's not you know if if Daniel like descended on a half moon wearing glitter like that would be absurdist and cool, but I would have a harder time defending why that works psychologically, you know? So, as you're talking about, say, like, like for example, the bathtub scene and, and working with Daniel's character and, and the way that that does that, like, when it comes time to actually shoot that, how are you working with, like, Patrick Schwarzenegger to say, hey, uh, here's, here's, I want you to get, I'm going yeah. to do a bathtub shot for you. Well, with Patrick, movie. with Patrick specifically, I had a fun relationship with him because, um, I mean, he's such an, like, unbelievably handsome man, yeah. right? Just, In our just like stellar, <laughs> just stellar handsome. And, um, and he knows it, and he's very comfortable and confident about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's been working as a model for years and years before he was acting. And, um, you know, when I, before a casting, we would just all look at photos of him and be like, mm -hmm. well, he looks like the guy. <laughs> right. And so, I, you know, I had, I had a fun time with him constantly just, to, you know, in talking to him, being like, I just want to see your hot body. Like, I just want people to think you're sexy. Like, this yeah. is an important part of the movie. Like, there's no, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't like manipulating him. Yeah. I was like, you're a hot man. Like, I yeah. want people to think I'm gay when yeah. they see, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. how I film you. Like, yeah. so I was like, you want to get this bathtub? And he was like, great, bring it on. Like, you want to hair wet or dry, you know, like there was no issue. What a great fucking question in response. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, I mean, even just the playfulness that you feel like, is there like, as uh, Luke and Daniel are kind of playing with this concept, like, oh, he's back in his life and now yeah. it's, it's sort of an adventure and it's fun, right? Yeah. It's, it's gleeful at that moment. The cheating scene and uh, the, like, I just, I love the playfulness yeah. of that. Just the look on Patrick's face as he's uh, 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 showing where he's, he's hidden these answers is just yeah. absolutely lovely. Yeah, cool. No, I'm glad you like that. There was, it, when we, it, that's another thing. When we edited that, I think there were even versions of that that were even funnier. Like, these two guys together throughout the movie were really funny. And they would really, like, sort of improv and riff to the point where when you look at the dailies, you're like, Wait, are you shooting a comedy? Like, I remember my producers watching the dailies being like, this movie's a lot funnier than we thought it was going to be. And then in the edit, I just start pulling a lot of that back because I wanted it to be like, the characters are having fun and there's a wish fulfillment and an excitement, but it takes place in a world of, of dread. But yeah, yeah I, I love them in that scene. I think that may have been, I think that was the first day. That was the first day of shooting we did that, the, the, um, the exam cheating scene. And that, um, you know, there's also... A shot in that sequence where you see the room super super wide and Daniel's not in the, the frame yeah, right mm -hmm. and so that was another thing in the in the style guide that was the whole movie was shot on I'm just gonna get super technical for sure yeah. so we shot the whole movie on a vintage mostly vintage anamorphic lenses oh, great. Um, but in these few shots throughout the movie where Daniel's not in it and we called that the, the objective point of view and that was shot on spherical lenses mm -hmm to just give you that extra little bit of like, 
it feels more like reality, a little bit, you know, there's something, you don't notice it necessarily, because, but you just kind of feel like there's mm-hmm. this little bit of difference in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, I have to say one more thing yeah, about yeah, the tattoos that I was just thinking yeah, of. Yeah, is, um, I think there was, I remember, you know, we had a number of different cuts, and every time we had cuts, we would show it to people, and I showed the very first cut of the movie to um, Brian's, uh, at the time, girlfriend and now wife, is uh, named Sarah Brochar. She's an editor. She edited Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. She edited Ready Player One. She does most of Spielberg's movies. And uh, I showed her a cut a month later, and she said, the only note she had on the whole movie was she was like, why did you cut out the shot where Patrick takes his shirt off? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I don't know why we did that. You're right. Totally that's, that's, busted. That's a good you... note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess there had been some different version. We had played with different versions of the exam. Maybe we were trying to move it more quickly or there was something. And, you know, but she was like, no, that scene where he like pops his buttons. And he... I was like, okay. All right. well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I love that sequence because, like you said, though, it's, it's playfulness in a world of dread. And like the setup to, like we said, the opening to the movie is fucking shocking. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're reeling as you go through this and you watch them playing together. And like, I'm not an idiot. I recognize yeah. that there's just some there's some badness to yeah. this relationship. Yeah. You're like, oh boy, that looks fun, but shit, it's gonna go bad. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's, I, well, and how the film also sort of introduces when Daniel comes back, these little moments of just on Daniel when we're focused on Daniel, while yeah. he, you know, looks asleep or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you can just imagine the rage that Daniel is feeling mm-hmm. as for being what he is. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you know. There are a variety of imaginary friend kind of movies. Yeah. Uh, and Like Drop Dead Fred? Are we going to talk about Drop Dead Fred now? I mean, I <laughs> yes. I would love to talk about Drop Dead Fred. I mean, it, it's so, I can't remember uh, who said it first, but somebody did mention it to us that it was like Drop Dead Fred, uh-huh. but the, you know, the insane cousin of it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, that's a good, you know... Uh, pull quote for a poster or whatever, yeah. maybe. Uh, but, but you, I guess it's good. Yeah. Hey, that's does what that people upset want. you? No, it doesn't upset me at all because, like, uh, you know, theoretically and on the narrative level, it, yeah. it is very similar. And um, But I didn't see that. I'd never seen that movie until we were about to shoot this movie. And, you know, because people talked to me about it so much. Yeah. And I was like, okay, what is it? And I don't know. I think that movie is fine, I guess, if you grew up with it. It's not, I don't think it's shot in a way that's exciting to me. No, you know, like it's not, it's not, it's not cinematic. <laughs> and so, sure. and so that, this is where like, so my movie is exactly like Drop Dead Fred if you're not talking about movies the way, uh-huh. the, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like if, uh-huh. in, if you read the Wikipedia article, they're identical movies. <laughs> if you watch the movies, they have nothing in common with each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, mean <laughs> I grew up with Drop Dead Fred. Actually, it always, Drop Dead Fred actually really bothered me when I first uh, saw it too. <laughs> uh, uh, but I did not think of Drop Dead Fred until someone mentioned it to yeah, me in yeah, context with this. Yeah. But to, my question is more about in creating the, the, the character of Daniel and the idea of Daniel yeah. and being aware of other films. Like, yeah. Were you ever... What was your confidence in the, the concept of Daniel in creating yeah. your version of him? Well, so from the beginning, I think I foolishly and with no uh, evidence believed that it would work. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it worked in the book, right? So in the, in the novel, which... Uh, is a really interesting point of view in the novel because the narrator is Daniel. So it's entirely oh, from Daniel's point of view, like meeting Luke and like, uh, you know, interacting with him and being part of his life and like 
sometimes he starts to die because Luke stops believing in him and comes back. You know, and, uh. and, and the book is like much, you know, it's probably about maybe 100 pages when they're kids and then there's a, a long sequence in high school and then it goes on to college and it's all Daniel's point of view and Daniel's wow. sort of disdain for humanity and, you know, this kind of thing. And in the they're book, even, even more so than in the movie, you never know if it's about are we in Luke's head, Luke's alter ego or some other entity or what, you know, it's very like turn of the screw and you just never, there's no evidence. Um, and so when we started writing the movie, I wasn't thinking about it. And this is it. This is an interesting thing for me. Um, in writing the script with Brian, I was only thinking about it as a screenwriter and I, I wasn't super thinking about what are the challenges going to be of shooting this. And it was only after it came time to really figure out about shooting it. I was like, what the fuck does it mean that there's this imaginary friend? Like, how are we going to do this? And it um, wasn't until the first time I did an audition for people, you know, and when I, I take, I love the audition process. Like, that's how I learn about how I'm going to direct the actors in the movie. Like, whoever comes into the audition, for me, it's an opportunity to learn about, like, right. what can this scene be? Like, how do I, how am I going to figure it out? What is, you know... Um, when I saw and I, you know, have other actors like interact with the person who's auditioning and I had them up on their feet and I, I w was working with the scene in the tunnel where um, Daniel wants to seduce uh, Sophie and, and, mm. and Luke is concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And having these two actors like he's talking to her, but Daniel's talking to him in his ear. And it was like it felt so energetic. And I was like, oh, OK, our movie's going to work. Like, I totally get it. Just from like an acting point of view, mm -hmm. we're going to be able to believe we're going to get what's happening. We know that, that from her point of view, they're just the two people talking. It, I guess what the breakthrough that I understood was this is a movie where in a normal movie, there'd be two people in a room. But we're always going to have three people in a room. And that's going to be super energetic and interesting. And now I just have to figure out, like, these more sort of crafty things we were talking about, like, okay, so do I need to think about what, you know, how am I going to lens that? But like the idea that the, the actors would be there interacting, so I just saw it working mm -hmm. and that made me feel confident mm -hmm. that we could work. And up until that, I was, I really was just like, boy, I hope this works. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, and I don't mean to slam everybody's favorite childhood movie from the nineties, but <laughs> in Drop Dead Fred, I just don't, I don't see those choices being made. Like he's just jumping around in an orange suit and maybe some people can see, maybe some people can't. And it doesn't, doesn't feel to me that there's like a visual well, Click. and like, does Drop Dead Fred answer anything at the end there? Like, is there a definitive answer of what is going on at the end of Drop Dead Fred? I don't even know if Drop Dead Fred asks questions. Right? Yeah, I don't think yeah. it does. I think it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a 90s comedy. Yeah. And the concept was, hey, you know what would be a funny movie? What about an imaginary friend, but as an adult, it comes yeah. back to yeah, engage yeah. with you, right? Yeah. Recapture your childhood, yeah. playfulness. Comedy ensues. Yeah, yeah, that's the extent of thinking about Drop Dead Fred. Oh man, now I'm shitting on Drop Dead Fred. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew my main cinematic purpose in life was to go after Drop Dead Fred? Uh, but but you're, you're clearly you know you have the Grant Morrison influence. You have the book itself as an influence. Yes. Um, yeah, you you've got a lot of uh, cinematic love in this mm -hmm. movie. Like, mm -hmm. are you thinking about your like? Other movies. Yeah, other yeah. Oh, movies. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Other so one of the, another part of the process, in addition to the style guide, was um, ripping scenes and sequences from movies and making Vimeo links that I could send everybody on, on awesome. the curve. So I had probably, uh, I'm not going to remember everything, but I had probably about 12 to 15 movies, mm -hmm. each of which had, had a Vimeo edit that was anywhere between 12 to like 45 minutes. And, um, and most people watched all of it. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and that also inspired a lot of conversations. Probably the, the most important one of those for me was um, The Exorcist. Sure. Just because, not just because, I, you know, I think of this as being a possession movie, a totally different way into thinking about a possession movie. Yes. And, 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 and I think that The Exorcist is among the very greatest, probably top three greatest horror movies for me because it's such a riveting drama, you know, 50 minutes of that movie is a drama. Reagan in the hospital. And, and it's um and it's just so great. And Friedkin, I love every single one of his movies. Mm-hmm. And um and the way that he shoots dialogue, people talk, people going about their lives is just like so riveting and so energetic. And so I really studied the way he moves the camera and the way he he frames things. And there's a couple shots in the movie that are taken straight from The Exorcist because I also feel, you know, Martin Scorsese has said like just rip off shots, like just rip, you know, he rips, you know, most people don't watch the movies that he rips off, so they don't really know, you know, <laughs> sure. um, but go back and watch like Max Ophuls, who's like, you know, a, 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 a filmmaker from like the 50s and 60s who just moves the camera like crazy and that's, you know, Scorsese. So I was like, I'm going to feel pretty confident about ripping off shots without, you know. With that um, permission. Yeah. Um, so I did that with The Exorcist, one of which is one where you're like, oh, that's a shot from The Exorcist. And that's on purpose because then you're like, ooh, I remember what happened right after this shot in The Exorcist. So things are going to go badly. But then there's other more subtle ones. And um, so that was a big one. Requiem for a Dream was a big one yeah, because I love how Requiem for a Dream just sets up this like manic escalation yep. that gets faster and faster and the intercutting between yeah. you know the different characters. And that was also a big influence on the music. You know, I kept talking to Chris Clark, our composer, about... You know, Requiem for a Dream, like it sets up these themes and it just fucking goes. Yeah. That music just goes and yeah. goes and anxiety. goes and pulls everything together. So yeah. much anxiety. Yeah. That's one of the most high anxiety yeah. movies of all time. Accurate. And I love that. I love that about it. It's funny because I'll be like, hey guys, let's go watch Requiem for a Dream again. And everyone I know is like, I can't ever watch that again. I will watch that movie constantly. Like, I think it's so thrilling. Um, and another one, I mean, Jacob's Ladder was one. I didn't yeah. study the. I didn't study the shots of that so closely as some of these other things, but it was, it's my favorite, one of my very favorite movies. I think it does such a great job of capturing what trauma feels like. Like this, mm-hmm. this idea where he's constantly like, where am I? Like, is this the world? Are these the life choices I made? And, and I feel like, you know, after the election, after Trump won, mm-hmm. I remember talking to friends of mine and I was like, this is like Jacob's Ladder, right? And they were like, yeah, I've been thinking about Jacob's Ladder. It's like, and you don't necessarily instantly connect that, but I, I think that feeling of like, you're in the wrong world, not even the demons, but just like something's like right. this woman that I'm waking up, she seemed, she loves me, but something's off or like, right ooh, you know, like, oh, I just woke up and now I'm in my other life. And it, but it was a dream. Like that feels really realistic to me. Really, yeah. really realistic. And his performance in that movie is so alive. You know, like, like this is going to be a bit of a detour, but I don't like the trend of horror movies to feel really sort of like dead and quiet and still all the time and all the, the characters are kind of bummed out. Yeah, yeah, or like, you know, like, we're in the house and it's... Um, and what Tim Robbins does in Jacob's Life, you know, there's that scene where he's like walking down the street and there's these girls sitting outside the stoop and they start singing Mr. Postman to him and he's laughing and they're laughing and that's, you know, like 30 to 40 minutes into this movie already and it's like having that liveliness, having a life makes it so much more mm-hmm. interesting. So I, as you guys probably know, I therefore cast his son <laughs> to star in the movie. And um, <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't because of that. I met him and he blew my mind and he auditioned and he was by far the best person who auditioned for. I mean, he was just incredible. And, um, 
normally when I talk to actors, I talk to them about Tim Robbins' performance in Jacob's Ladder because mm. it's so great, and I want to say like this live, but I, I was like, I can't do that with him, <laughs> so I don't want to fuck him up and make him think that that's why I hired sure, him because yeah. that would get into his head. Right. So instead, I talked to him about Rocky, and I was like, you know how Rocky Balboa is just walking around like, hey, yeah, hey, feed a fish, uh, it's a dog, yeah, this is a thing, you know? And um, so I was like, you play a character, you know, there's something so depressive here, but what if you're trying to make jokes to try to keep your head above water, you know? Yeah. So, he, but then later. As we started working together, one day he was like, "You know, this scene really reminds me of Jacob's Ladder." Oh, and I was like, "Well, you've brought it up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, "What?" And he was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Yeah, kind of, you know, I love that movie." And he was like, "Well, it's like my fa- my favorite movie of my father's, and it was part of the reason I wanted to do this movie because it reminded me of Jacob's Ladder, and I thought it would be cool." And then we all started talking about it, and all the other actors, and Hannah was like, yeah, Jacob's Ladder, and Patrick was like, oh, Jacob's Ladder, and Sasha Lane was like, what's Jacob's Ladder, guys? <laughs> and it was like a distillation of all of them. So I, 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 felt, I felt good about uh, his, you know, that we could talk openly, but I think I did need to let him bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. or it would have been weird. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think of your film living next to other films? Like I mean, you come to a festival like this, obviously it's playing against other films, but yeah. like separated a decade from now. Yeah, and I mean like you're in that canon now. Yeah, yeah. whereas you know, Daniel's I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, that's it's an interesting question. It's hard because I don't, I don't know. You yeah. can't, you know. I hope people put it in the right spots. Uh-huh. I mean, I you know I was really moved to make. I grew up loving horror movies. I had a subscription to Fangoria magazine. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was casting my friends. Faces and making latex monsters like oh, when I was shit. 12, but then I wasn't necessarily gonna make horror movies mm-hmm. But I wasn't inter- you know, I was making music videos and things like that and and I've always had like a Maybe a violent or scary edge to what I was doing, but I wasn't necessarily like I'm devoted to horror movies and then um I saw martyrs Yeah and it really did. And I, I saw Martyrs. I mean, I, I think, I guess I somehow, I can't remember which one I saw first, but I saw one of the French movies from that period. Sure. And then I watched them all, you know, within a week. And, oh, my God. And really got, and I was like, this stuff, this is like everything I've been looking for. And, and there was the one, um, I can't remember what the French name for it is, but it's the Ordeal. It's, this, it's the Belgian director who also made Calvert. Oh, and, man, Calvert. Yeah, Calvert is a crazy one. The ordeal is kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre-ish, uh-huh. but it's a guy, and he breaks down in a small town, and it, it just goes really off the rails. It's really insane, but it feels really realistic. And, um, and I watched all those movies inside, you know, obviously, and, um, and I was like, these are like, they're French people. <laughs> <laughs> but they grew up seeing American horror movies like Texas Chainsaw, but and so they wanted to make them, but they, they're French, so they can't help but have them be really meaningful. And, and I was like, this is like, that really speaks to me. That's what I want to do. Like, how is horror meaningful? And, yeah. and then I also, around the same time, I saw um, Horrible Way to Die, mm. which, you know, also really, like, inspired me. And I think it's in the way when people talk about like, oh, we saw the Velvet Underground play and then we had to start a band. Like right. I saw a Horrible Way to Die and I was like, oh, I could, I need to get like $50,000 and shoot something meaningful. Shit, I can do this. Yeah, I can do this. And, and, yeah. and not just I can do it because I don't know if I can, that movie's fucking great and I don't know yeah. if I can do it, but I can intend, I can have the intention of doing something that's so meaningful. You know, like that movie was really about something and really emotional and had great performances and was also an insane serial killer movie yeah. and um, 
And I, re- I just, you know, I really reacted to that in a, in a strong way. I can see why that would appeal to you because there's a lot of like visual voyeurism in mm-hmm. the framing of the shots mm-hmm. and the way that they do that. Yeah, like, I love the way he shoots a, that. Yeah, he's telling yeah. a really visual story. Yeah, it's really strong. It's really confident. Yeah, it's totally visual and um, and it's really meaningful, really emotional. I mean, that's why the, I think the first thing I said when I sat down with you guys yeah. when you were talking about it, it upsetting you, like I like when horror movies use what the genre can do to like to create a very uh, an intense emotional experience. Mm. And I mean, I love Evil Dead 2. I think that's one of, also one of the greatest movies in the world. It, sure. it, it lives in a completely different category than what I'm describing. Yeah. I think movies that sort of rip it off, I don't like, mm-hmm. Right. you know? Um, or like movie, Dead Alive maybe rips it off and that's also a, one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, no, I, I, never, I don't mean to discount anything, right? Mm-hmm. But like, what I'm interested in about horror is the intensity of emotion. Do you find an intense emotional experience, like when you watch a movie like Martyrs and you're like, fuck, is that restorative for you or exhausting? Yeah, well, with, with, Martyr, with Martyrs, the first time I saw Martyrs, my main reaction was like inspiration and in- excitement. Yeah. Because, and I think people, when you, if you've only ever seen Martyrs once in your life, you're going to tend to think about all of the horrible stuff that happens in the second half. Sure. What I got out of it, yeah. <laughs> what I got out of the first time of watching it was that it was uh, constantly plot twists. Like I was surprised every seven minutes. Mm-hmm. I could not believe mm-hmm. what I was seeing. It was something brand new and unexpected. And then um, I've watched it a couple more times since then. The most recent time I watched it. I went on, you know, uh, the Canon, the podcast. Oh yeah. yeah. So I went on the Canon to defend martyrs, and um, what I realized when I was watching it for th- that time was that it is the most empathetic horror movie I've ever seen. Interesting. And once you get Pat, you know, there is a scene towards the very end when she's been through like all of her torments, when this incredible, like, sort of piano music is playing, and 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 she's kind of curled up into a ball, and she's having memories about. Uh, I think her friend's name is Lucy. Um, and she's having memories about her, and you realize that it's a movie about how much they loved each other, or even how much she, the girl that survives, loved the girl that died, and how, you know, like, because she's in this situation just because she was supporting her. And there's something, it's like so deeply empathetic and about love. And I think it's, if you do not, if you're not prepared for an intense horror movie, you will never get to the. Tootsie Roll center of Martyrs <laughs> as being a movie about love, but it is a, it is a movie 100% about love, and um and that and that's why I think it's it's so much more meaningful than movies with less violence in it, and yeah. certainly much more meaningful than movies that try to achieve that kind of shock violence but don't have a thing that it's about. Like Martyrs is about love, yeah. and that's incredible, and that and that became a really important thing to me on Daniel was to make it a movie about empathy, mm-hmm. even if we were depicting. It an entire cosmology that seems evil. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about empathy a lot with uh, several filmmakers this uh, weekend. And I feel like because of the time we're in right now, uh. we need our entertainments, you know, whether they're horror or action or comedy to be really empathetic. 100% right. That's the, I think that's, I think that's the most important responsibility. You know, it's like, um, it's hard. I think it's hard to do art that has a general social good you know, I think that's really difficult because you have to be so specific with your characters. But I, I think if you can focus on empathy, that's something that filmmaking and art can do. And that, and you're exactly right about this time. Like that was so. This was a breakthrough that I had because when I f- first was thinking about making this movie, I was thinking about it as a 
movie that was nihilistic. Like I wanted to, mm, sure. you know, because I love black metal and I love, <laughs> you know, just I love evil shit. Yeah. To be honest, and I, and I, and 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 all of my life, I felt like I was the person who understood how dark the world is. Nobody around me did, and you know, I was like, I got to make this movie that's really about like you fuckers, like, we're all gonna die, and, like, everybody's evil, and, like, don't you see, like, fucking eat shit, you know, like, that was sort of my point of view, and then, um, when we were told, hey, you know, and that was seven and a half years ago we started working on this, it's been a long time to get this movie made, and when it was like, okay, greenlit, like, we've got the money, we're gonna be able to make this movie, I was like, and the election happened in 2016, again, this is the second time I'm bringing it up, but it was like, well, do we need that now? Yeah. Like, yeah. Do, no, what, what is the purpose right? of that? And, I, and, and, and you kind of like, you can now talk to any like accountant and they'll be like, it's the apocalypse. Like the world is yeah. so fucked up. Everybody's evil. Can you believe that America is racist? And you're like, <laughs> you know, I find these conversations really frustrating, but also like, okay, well now I guess it's all on the table. And, and so I was like, so that's not going to be interesting. Like a movie that's just like, it's fucked up. is not going to be interesting to anybody. And that was when I hit on this idea of empathy. And I was like, well, what if the, the story is how, what is the, how do we struggle to remain empathetic in a world that we know is nihilistic? Mm -hmm. and, then, and then I was like, oh, that's the that's fight that Luke and Daniel are having. So now I understand why the movie has meaning. So we've been talking for about an hour now, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get out without Billy asking your question. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, man, through the podcast and through writing for Film School Rejects, um, you know, we've had a chance to interview a lot of filmmakers, and I think the one through line with all the filmmakers that we talk to is that making movies is just really fucking hard, mm -hmm. and we know that. Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we always like to kind of end on a positive note. Sure. Um, and so my question always is, you know, look. Looking back at your career, is there um, one single moment that you will use in future times when you, you know, the fucking shot doesn't work right or the day isn't going well and you feel very low because you're exposed, you're creating something? Is there one positive moment that you look back at? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, a, it's going to be a range of positive moments, but they're all sort of the same thing, which is that in the past, so I've now shown this movie five times only, three times at South Vine, two times here at Overlook. and. Every time people have come up to me afterwards and said like, thank you for making this movie or like, I really recognize something on screen or, you know, and, um, and there was such a like intense connection between the person I'm talking to and the movie yeah. that I made that it was like the whole thing is worth it because like, it's just a, a amazing. And I, I, and two things to extrapolate from that. One is that, um, I tried to, I don't, I don't yet know, I would maybe someday like to, but I don't yet know how to make a movie that's for everybody. So I try to like really imagine, like create a character almost, like who is a person who, that this could be their favorite thing. Right. And I've done that on, on both of my movies and my comic book where I just imagine like, it's not gonna be for everybody, but it's gonna be somebody's favorite thing. Like, so, and I wanna be true to that, and then I keep their image in my mind, and keep making the movie for this sort of invented person. So that it's, you know, you're not, well, it's funny, let's do it. It's like, no, I don't think that this invented person, I, it's like having an imaginary friend <laughs> tell you, you know, imaginary friend who's a film critic. Um, <laughs> weird. Um, and, the, and the other thing I want to say is that, like, you know, it took, like I said, seven and a half years to make this movie. And a lot of times during that time, you're like, well, I've, I've wasted my life. I'm going to die without doing anything. Like, you know, it can get really dark. Yeah. But once, um, once the movie started getting made, it was so worth it. 
like all it would it doesn't matter how much time it took like all of that all of that anxiety from those seven and a half years was totally erased and it was like totally worth it like that's the time it took to do this and and the thing that I keep thinking now and it's not regret but it is like suggestions to other people is like try to not spend that time being anxious about it like try to spend that time loving yourself and being stoked like the times that I spent like unable to get out of bed because I'm a failure like I could have just been watching cool old French movies and enjoying life mm. and like that you know like the positive thing that I've learned is that like all of that time is not wasted and it's not bad you will eventually get to do the thing like if you stay close to your vision mm -hmm. yeah. you'll eventually get to do the thing that you're super proud of and then it doesn't you know it's awesome like we can't all be Harmony Korine who fucking knocked out of the park when he was 17 and those kind of ideas I think sometimes can fuck with our heads um but the just the joy of making one thing that you're proud of that somebody else says I loved is like that's it, man. That's worth it. And you know, like, do we? I, you know, I sure I want you to go and make the movie that everybody will love. Mm -hmm. But do I? Do I really want that? Do we want to make movies that everybody will right. love? Well, who's even gonna love movies in ten years? Like that's well, you know, shit. like I don't know. Like, <laughs> you guys will, and and the people listening to this, you know, who like you know, but there's. You know, I, do, I have a concern about what the future of movies and cinematic language is, but, I, but that's okay, too. Mm -hmm. I guess we just move past the positive note. Well, <laughs> well, well, that's, but that's I fascinating, mean, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just at Meow Wolf in, in Santa Fe, uh -huh. which is, like, to me, the future of, of... Like, when we were saying earlier, like, movies aren't rumors about imaginary people, uh -huh. immersive entertainment is. Like, that's exactly what they are. Like, yeah. you walk into a house and you pick up a newspaper and it's like, oh, there's a wedding and, a, and then you go and, it's, sure. and there's a... Giant fucking yeah. thing. Like, is I don't know if you know what future? Meow Wolf is, but it's, yeah, uh, it is 100% the future. Yeah. I think it's 100% the future. Are you interested in exploring? Uh, I am VR now. Or, now, or, that yeah, I've, <laughs> now that I've seen that, really? I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Like, I think that's providing, it's just a whole new language. Because I don't know if it's because I'm a grumpy, uh, you know, uh, old man, uh, but like, I like, like a movie is a movie. Movies are the best, and yeah. I love. I, lo I absolutely love them, and I always want to make movies. But I, I just, I honestly don't know if we're going to continue to make movies yeah. per se. Like we'll have series, you know. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think like within the next ten to twenty years, like Star Wars movies are going to morph from being a movie to being like a place you go. Yeah, you know? It's happened. It's well, I know weekend. with the Galaxy's Edge, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But I think like even like you know, I think like. Give it more time, and eventually, like every like Blumhouse is going to be making, you know, like they'll just be set up like a pop up shop yeah, in every city yeah, yeah, instead yeah. of a movie, or like some, you know, yeah. there's some kind of we'll thing like that. Inside. I mean, the way that people talk about the Avengers is like you you just want to hang out with them. Yeah, so sure. if you have the opportunity to hang out with them, that's going to be more powerful. But um, no, but they, we, you know, we do cinematic storytelling is so beautiful. There'll be some version of it yeah i mean that's where i feel like of course uh you know cinema has always evolved from the moment it was created yeah and, and stories have evolved you know they're different mediums and whatnot and i think the popularity of certain mediums you know peak and valley and all that stuff yeah and you know video games and vr and immersive you know i can see that being the future for mainstream entertainment yeah but hopefully we still have movies yeah we'll stuff. have them i mean there's still poetry <laughs> sections in right. bookstores yeah 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 we sell like uh, five of them a year. Yeah. <laughs> I managed the Barnes and Noble. I, we dusted it frequently. Yeah. Well, remember when like Lord Byron was like the biggest rock star on the planet? Yeah. You know, three hundred so years ago. Kind of <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much. Thank for you guys. This was awesome. Us. Really great questions. Um, where yeah. should we point listeners to? 
Any, uh, any projects that are out there that they can have access to, reach out to you? Obviously, be on the lookout for Daniel. Yeah, Daniel yeah. isn't real. We'll be um, doing festivals for the next several months, okay. and then um, hopefully soon we'll be making an announcement about distribution and when everybody okay. can see it, which will um, almost certainly be before the end of the year. Great. And um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Adam Egypt, okay. where I can talk more about that. And then... Um, you know, I made a, a previous much smaller movie called Some Kind of Hate mm -hmm. that I think is out there mm -hmm. in, in the world. It was it was cool. It was the first movie. The, this new movie is the one I'm really yeah. right. the most proud of. Gotcha. Um, and I wrote a graphic novel called Ballistic that's really insane and, and pretty different. Not horror, and it's it's a different it's a much more just explosive nonsense batshit vibe than, than that's what my, my next is. purchase into it yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a, a it's a it's a it takes place in the future where all technology is alive and it's about an air conditioning repairman and his talking sentient drug addicted Shut gun and what happens when they decide to finally rob a bank for the first time you do like grant morrison <laughs> <laughs> grant morrison called it his favorite book of the year when it came out so he was Shit. the you know Oh, that's what that's I mean awesome. about wanting yeah. it to be somebody's favorite thing. Yeah, I was like, yeah. nobody else read yeah, it. Yeah. But Grant loved yeah. it, so that was cool. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I <have> <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Man. This was awesome. And there you have it. Wow. Pretty epic conversation. I, I think this is... I, I know that we say this a lot, but this is genuinely one of my favorite conversations. I found Adam to be uh, remarkably open uh, and willing to talk about anything and everything down to the finest of details that we wanted to get into for the way that we did it. And it's obvious that he is super proud of this movie, and he should be. It, it, it's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the first thing I did after we got done with this conversation was hit up Amazon and I ordered his graphic novel Ballistic that he did with Derek Robertson. I am a fan for life with Adam Egypt Mortimer, uh, which, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a thrill to m meet a filmmaker, uh, chat to him with uh, uh, chat to him about his movie, and uh, really dig into the serious thought that he put into every element, you know, not just narrative, not just the visual aspects, not just the auditory aspects. He is the type of guy who is constructing all the elements. Yeah. Well, it's an experience. Um, and, and I, I'm not surprised to find that he's uh, very bullish on the future of immersive experience in terms of art for entertainment, because I think you can see his interest in that kind of immersiveness in the way that he's constructed Daniel isn't real. You know, it reminds me of our conversation with Al White about starfish, um, kind of the things, the subjects are not exactly one-to-one -one lineup, but that approach to visual storytelling and immersive, like immersive experience of something that is, is a very heavy subject. Um, I, I feel like they're very much of a feather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So seek out Daniel Isn't Real. Find your local film festival. Find where it's playing next. Go there. It's worth the badge price, whatever it is. I agree. Uh, and then uh, keep your radar out when it uh, finally hits uh, local theaters. Yeah. So next week, Billy, we are continuing our chats out of the Overlook Film Festival. Who are we talking to next? Uh, the producers of Horror Noir. Right. So that's Dr. Robin Armines Coleman, whose Horror Noir is based off of her book. Yep. Uh, writer, producer, Ashley Blackwell, and novelist, educator, Tanana Reeve Du. Yeah. I strongly recommend, if you don't have a subscription to, to Shudder, 
go get it um, and take a look at Horror Noir. It's it's a really amazing documentary that digs deep into uh, the contributions for uh, black filmmakers throughout the history of cinema to the horror genre. Um, and even at the very least, you're going to come away from that documentary with a list of movies that you need to go out and watch. It's really powerful stuff. Yeah, I love that doc, and I'm, I'm so glad to have introduced it to you. Yeah. I'm taking responsibility uh, <laughs> of that. Uh, and yeah, listeners, get Shudder, watch Horror Noir. It's, it's, it is a feast of a movie. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, Billy, where can our listeners find you online? Sure. You can find me uh, at WBDAS on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, and you can also find me at Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, which is a podcast that I co-host with my nine-year-old daughter as we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. And you can follow our other dorks uh, at ItModCast on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Darren Smith at The Disco Dork, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren, and Brian Young at The Turtle Dork. I, of course, am at Mouth Dork, and you can find me on all social medias there. And yeah, there you go. Until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 